0: In the Maureen M again waiting for my next trip. We were working in the water this morning in the southern end of Port Phillip Bay with dolphins and seals all around us and it's just one of those sunny flat calm days where you feel guilty getting paid. But I'll get paid regardless I don't think I'll tell the boss not to pay me. Certainly earn our keep on other days. Episode 116, Possibly. Operation High Jump. In the immediate wake of the USASA, the only US government interest in Antarctica arose from geographical disquiet over the publication of an Australian map of the continent in 1939. The Australian product incorporated a lot of data from Rich's Nazi project of 1938, and as such, didn't really bring much new reliable information to the table. What it did was announce that, with Germany otherwise occupied, Australia was at the forefront of Antarctic exploration and quantification. Given the USASA comprised the most recent and most accurate new development in Antarctic geography in a decade, the United States State Department felt compelled to respond. Unfortunately, those USASA personnel, still in the government books as cartographers, were busy developing maps and charts for military purposes for the foreseeable future so it fell to Commander English to compile and publish The Sailing Directions for Antarctica, 1943. Detractors cited that this document drew heavily on the British Hydrographic Office's 1930 Antarctic pilot, that existing and internationally recognised names for landmarks were replaced with American nomenclature, and that what new information it brought to the table was either of little use to mariners, or sketchy to the point only extremely rash mariners might employ it in navigating such treacherous waters. Whatever the document's maritime merit, it went to the presses and announced US interests in the far south. Antarctica fell off the US government radar for a further two years as the Second World War ran to its brutal conclusions in the west and then the east. The American Philosophical Society published a 400-page special edition of its proceedings to encompass 27 papers arising from the USASA in 1945, but the overall expedition memoir never came about. Bird had the time and the money and the ghostwriters necessary to make it happen, but didn't, likely because he didn't want any document about Antarctica going to press unless he was the central character in every aspect. His attempts to distance himself from the problems of communication and effort the USA experienced couldn't help but remove him from the bulk of the narratives that might arise, so he may have felt some relief that the expedition never received its own book armchair geographers continued to push American primacy in Antarctica. In 1940, William Hobbs held a symposium to celebrate the centenary of the XX and to try to give Wilkes credit for first recognising Antarctica is a continent. It's true that Wilkes asserted this, but he never had enough information for that assertion to stand as anything more than that. Hobbs also wanted Wilkes recognised as the first person to sight Antarctica, while his contemporary Colonel Martin wanted that same recognition to go to Nathaniel Palmer. Their efforts weren't up to the task of convincing anyone outside their circle, though those circles included such US geographic luminaries as Bowman, Boggs, Jorg and Harold Saunders. They never agreed on much regarding sightings, landings and geographic data, other than that it was Morica did all the firsts first. Royal Geographical Society Geographic Luminary, Arthur Hinks, did his best to rebut Hobbes and Martin's output, but as no one was listening outside their own spheres of influence, he might as well have saved his energy. Thought bubbles, information silos and echo chambers aren't a new phenomenon. Hobbes and Hinks engaged in bitter slanging matches about forged documents and vested interests, that would give some present day Twitter flame wars a run for their money, and not a single fuck about their respective claims was given outside their respective spheres of influence. With no traction on the Wilkes or Palmer front, Martin turned his attention to promoting the efforts of James Eights during the XX, claiming that Eights' recognition of boulders embedded in icebergs as denoting land in the far south constituted the earliest confirmation of a continental landmass though Eights only ever went as far as mentioning a possible string of islands. Martin concluded that the island chain's non-existence meant Eights actually recognised a continental landmass, even though he never realised it or mentioned it, putting words in a long dead mouth in order to preserve his personal conviction that America firsted first and hardest and loudest. Meanwhile, Bird was on hand to witness the formal signing of surrender documents as the war in the Pacific came to an end. Emperor Hirohito announced the surrender on the 15th of August, but the formal document ceremony took place two weeks later on the 2nd of September. A week after the formal surrender aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, Byrd's mind was, once more, focused on high latitudes. He wrote to those Washington power brokers still brokering some power in the wake of Roosevelt's death and kindly disposed to the self-appointed mayor of Antarctica that, "...now is the time to act." while we have trained manpower and excess equipment. It is proposed that we use aircraft carriers and long-range planes to make a complete survey of the continent, map its coasts and interior, rejuvenate the US Antarctic service, and use the Antarctic as a polar scientific laboratory. End quote. Much as he might want to claim credit for what came next, it wasn't thirst for Antarctic endeavour or even territorial claims that drove the next US government-backed Antarctic project fear of Soviet attack in the north. The war in Europe did give some US aviators and mariners some experience of high-latitudes operations. Air bases in Greenland served as a staging point for aircraft in transit to the European theatre, and US Navy ships served in trying to keep German forces from landing on the extensive and crinkly coastline in order to fuck Allied shit up. But US military leaders knew the Russians could fight in the cold better than anyone other than the Finns, and with the rapid development in weaponry and weapons delivery systems spurred by the war, the idea that the North Pole might serve as the shortest route to attack North America occurred to everyone with reason to contemplate such matters. Polar air routes were already being considered and felt out 15 years earlier by Gino Watkins and co. So with post-war airframes, the threat was, and was perceived as, a very real one, and only growing more dire as the technology involved continued to surge ahead into the jet age. U.S. forces needed to get to grips with cold climate logistics, strategies and tactics, and at the hurry-up. They could have gathered in and around Alaska to practice the new techniques and to test new equipment, but with the Bering Strait being narrow and Soviet attention to territorial waters thereabouts intense, U.S. military leaders deemed it prudent to seek opportunities to get their personnel and machines really cold in the North Atlantic. Even then, Russia protested at what followed as being overtly threatening to their national interests. In the boreal summer of 1946, the US Navy kicked off its drive toward high latitudes competence with Operation Nanook. U.S.A. veteran and distinguished in-theater wartime leader, Admiral Richard Cruzen, commanded a fleet of six ships including a seaplane tender, an icebreaker, an oiler and a submarine spending July to August trying out various novel operational modes, surveying the Greenland coast, and establishing a radio relay station for the eventual establishment of Thule Air Base. A definition is called for. A seaplane tender in the Royal Navy denotes a small vessel, ranging from a launch to a pinnace in size, and providing services to a flying boat in roles that would be filled by wheeled vehicles at an airport. Fueling, maintenance, arming, crewing up, an unpowered taxi. That sort of thing. In the US Navy a seaplane tender is a ship that carries large long-range seaplanes to increase the maritime patrol capacity of a fleet. The Karatuk class seaplane tenders were built during and served in the war in the Pacific and carried Martin PBM Mariner long-range flying boats during the operations featured here. They could crane their charges onto and off the water And service them between flights without all the bothersome loss of spanners to the sharks that so often accompanied seaplane maintenance on the water. Seaplane tenders aren't aircraft carriers even though they carry aircraft as the aircraft can't take off and land on the ship, though German seaplane tenders did feature catapults for getting the aircraft airborne. While such ships have served in many navies almost since the invention of powered flight, their day is long past as flying boats were made redundant by the extensive runway building programs of the Second World War and the decades that followed. I still like flying boats, but what I like, and what's likely to make an aircraft manufacturer or an airline money, are two distinct categories. The short notice given to prepare for, and small scale, of Operation Nanook limited its utility in training up large numbers of US Navy personnel for high latitudes operations, but it did enough, well enough, that a follow-up in the South lay on the cards. In August 1946, President Dwight D. Eisenhower gave the green light for a southern project to US Navy Secretary James Forrestal and Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz, Chief of Naval Operations. Forrestal, who spoke of Antarctica as holding quote, unknown treasures, unquote, denoting intentions in addition to military training, Forrestal and Nimitz delegated responsibility for getting things moving to DeWitt clinton Ramsey, commander aboard the aircraft carrier USS Saratoga up until the landings at Guadalcanal, and immediate post-war Vice Chief of Naval Operations. He passed down orders to the Pacific and Atlantic Fleet commanders to get moving on the Antarctic Development Project, better known by its codename, Operation High Jump, to practice the rapid deployment of aircraft to an area similar to the Greenland Ice Dome to test new vehicles, aircraft and techniques for personnel deployment in extreme cold conditions, and to survey the Antarctic coasts in the areas claimed by Australia, France and Norway and to the east of the Ross Sea, an Antarctic area considered most closely associated with the USA based on Byrd's most recent expedition and often referred to as the Phantom Coast, having been infrequently and fleetingly seen. An extensive program of flying, surveying and construction projects lay in the offing for the austral summer. Ramsey placed Richard Cruzen in charge of day-to-day operations, but took care to place Richard Byrd in the figurehead role of officer in charge. This kept Byrd at the forefront of US minds, paying heed to the project, but kept the increasingly poorly regarded Mayor of Antarctica from placing his personal polar glory ahead of the expedition goals. Byrd lost a lot of Washington D.C. cachet on the death of his sometimes friend Franklin D. Roosevelt and through his Nazi appeasement track in the lead-up to the war in Europe and his performance during the war in the Pacific left a lot of people with power underwhelmed with him. Naval contemporaries, never keen on someone getting promoted to flag rank for PR antics and public laurels, didn't display their disdain for Byrd openly but never sang his praises as loudly as Byrd did himself. Cruisen saw the orders issued by Ramsey as best served by a three-prong approach, dividing the ships and personnel appointed to his project into a central, an eastern and a western group. He would command the central group, taking the icebreaker USCG Northwind, the submarine USS Senate, the Oilers USS Yancey and USS Merrick, and the command ship USS Mount Olympus. The icebreaker carried a Grumman Duck Scout amphibian biplane and a Sikorsky HNS-1 helicopter for picking the best path through the ice and for making landfall if the opportunity should arise. The HNS-1, also called the Hoverfly, was the first commercially manufactured helicopter deriving directly from Igor Sikorsky's S-300 prototype which is on display at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, which is a facility well worth a visit for that airframe alone. Raggedy genius. Smart and brave, that Russian emigre engineer. The USS Mount Olympus carried a Nordorian Norseman bush plane to act as Bay of Wales aerial reconnaissance platform and station hack. Two Stinson L5 Grasshopper, the same aircraft as mentioned in episodes about the rare, As an L5 Sentinel but with the Navy and the Army designations making life confusing. Liaison aircraft were also assigned for cargo transfer to the Bay of Wales. This central group planned to press into the Ross Sea to establish Little America 4 in the Bay of Wales. Little America 4 would then act as the centre of operations for an extensive aerial surveying effort the larger aircraft arriving from the aircraft carrier USS Philippine Sea, holding station outside the ice, the first time aircraft flew in to Antarctica from outside. Cruzen's navigator aboard the USS Bear during the USASA, George Dufek, who spent the war mostly engaged in serving on and then commanding aircraft carriers, would lead the Eastern Group, and Charles Bond, making his first foray to Antarctica, would command the Western Group. The Eastern and Western Group each comprised a seaplane tender, an oiler, and a destroyer. Each seaplane tender would carry three Martin Mariner long range maritime patrol flying boats, two ready to go and one dismantled for easier storage, along with a Grumman Duck Scout and Air Sea Rescue Trifibius biplane and a Sikorsky H02S helicopter, known in other services as the R 5 or the S 51 and when manufactured in Britain by Westland, as the Dragonfly. A more advanced development of Sikorsky's S-300 breakthrough, encapsulated in a more Buck Rogers outer casing, looking like an actual helicopter, where the HNS-1 looks like a child's drawing of one. Or, my drawing of one. Labelled Task Force 68 by its Atlantic Fleet Overseers, the expedition comprised 4,700 personnel, most of them drawn from the Navy, but featuring a number of civilian scientists, departmental bureaucrats, and small cohorts of Army and United States Marine Corps observers. And I'll name them all now. A. Abbotson. Just kidding. Cruzen only received seven weeks to get moving, and did exactly that. Shortfalls and mistakes arising from the rush later crammed how much got done and the quality of the work that did get done but seven weeks is something of a record in Antarctic expedition annals and demonstrates how good military frameworks can be at getting shit done, albeit on a financial footing most other expeditions can only dream of, and using a leadership framework civilian expedition leaders might willingly give up a significant number of toes for. The orders, kept largely secret until 1955, required that Operation High Jump, and I quote directly here from Kenneth Bertrand's Americans in Antarctica, 1775-1948 Train personnel and test equipment under Antarctic conditions Consolidate and extend the basis for United States claims in the Antarctic, if such should subsequently be made Investigate problems in the selection of Antarctic base sites and in their establishment, maintenance and use Develop techniques for the establishment, maintenance and use of air operational facilities on ice Extend the knowledge of Antarctic hydrography, geography, geology, meteorology, and electromagnetic propagation. Supplement the 1946 Arctic Operation Nanook. Morning, John. Looking pants. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer agreed to edit and distribute the footage arising from the expedition as commercial film, but couldn't send camera operators, that duty falling to military personnel, and all footage passing through layers of military intelligence sensors before going anywhere near a studio. Among the list of US military officers taking part in the expedition, several names stand out. Those men having served in previous Antarctic projects, these include Naval Aviator Lieutenant Commander James McCoy, Lieutenant Commander Frederick Dustin, Lieutenant Charles Shirley, Captain Vernon Boyd, Captain Murray Weiner, Chief Warrant Officer Alan Morency, and Radio Man Amory Waite. Also notable for having a funny name, Cruisin's Chief of Staff, Captain Robert S. Quackenbush, Jr. Also notable for a funny name that actually led me to believe the book he published on his experiences during Operation High Jump went to press under a pseudonym Commander Joseph B. Eisenhower Captain aboard the submarine USS Senate Dr. Paul Seipel went as an Army observer and to lead the small scientific program the Navy afforded him resources for once ashore in the Bay of Wales Eisenhower's book is called The first book of the Antarctic, even though it wasn't, and it went to press in 1956. Change your locations today. I'm down on the floating wharf near the boat ramps at Queenscliff. Just as the Queenscliff cuts, reaching maximum flood tide. About an hour off sunset. Nice. Brains just clear the air. Looking back into Operation High Jump. I like his book as a window into what the senior US Navy officers wanted children to know about Antarctica in the mid 1950s. And the illustrations by Russ Anderson carry a menacing charcoal charm. Dr Paul Seipel went as an Army observer and to lead the small scientific program the Navy afforded him resources for once ashore in the Bay of Wales. High jump marked the first time radio direction and ranging equipment was applied in survey work in Antarctica. Shipboard fire control radars, developed during the war to apply the new technology in order to improve artillery accuracy, were used to fix the positions of landmarks relative to the positions of the ships. The same process as shooting angles with a theodolite, with light and eyeballs replaced by centimetric electromagnetic signals and radio receivers, respectively. Ground tracking radar units in the noses of the Martin Mariners was used to see, and I made air quotes there, coastlines and landscape features through cloud, thereby making some geographic interpretation possible, even in poor visibility. Radar recording film cameras served to capture geographic data from the screens of the ground-tracking radar sets. Radar altimeters used to determine an aircraft's height above ground proved useful in determining the height of ice domes. The barometric altimeter gave an approximate height above sea level and the radar altimeter gave the height above ground, so subtracting the latter from the former gave the ground's height above sea level, approximately. Radar altimeters are only accurate when the aircraft is flying level, and the barometric altimeter relies on a calibration made at takeoff, and assumes constant air pressure gradients throughout the atmosphere the aircraft passes through, which is useful in terms of aerial navigation, but largely impossible to defend for anyone who goes outside and watches the weather for more than 10 minutes. Getting flying boats up to flying speed is difficult, water and its waves and such providing more friction than wheels on a runway. An aircraft on the cusp of flying speed can end up stalled in a trough by a bad enough impact with a large enough wave crest, and a lot of flying boat accidents at takeoff result in a badly torn open hull and everybody drowning. So the US Navy began employing jet assisted takeoff measures in the closing stages of the Second World War. German aeronautical engineers put a lot of energy and ingenuity into rocket motor research before and during the Second World War and a lot of the data and materials resulting from that research went to the USA as part of Operation Paperclip, otherwise known as Let's Steal Ourselves a Space Program as War Reparations. In addition to providing the US with Werner von Braun, and the large quantities of NASA that followed his arrival, Operation Paperclip allowed US engineers to skip a lot of the explosions and catastrophic air accidents the Germans already put themselves through in developing rocket boosters for conventionally powered airframes. The Luftwaffe used solid fuel rocket motors to boost large transports, heavily laden bombers and a suicidally dangerous last gasp fighter airframe, the Buckham Natter, into the air, and the fruits of German labour in this field appeared on the undersides and flanks of US military aircraft in the immediate wake of the war. I should mention that US and British engineers were also making and testing JATO systems up to and during the war, but with few exceptions such as the Harakat convoy fighters. They weren't employed during wartime. Single use solid rocket motors, referred to as jet assisted takeoff bottles, provide a brief and intense burst of thrust to help get an airframe up to flying speed in a short space. They're spectacular to watch and are reliable in that they do what it says on the box, but when something goes wrong with them, it goes wrong quickly and catastrophically due to the forces and heat involved, and the fact that once you've lit a JATO up, there's no way to turn it off or throttle its output, and we'll deal with some nasty JATO-related accidents in an Antarctic context in future episodes. Lots of JATO bottles went south with Operation High Jump to help heavily laden aircraft get airborne in a shorter takeoff run than their piston-driven propellers could manage. The Martin Mariners carried, in addition to trimetragon cameras and ground-tracking radar units, tail-mounted magnetometers. Originally designed to detect submerged submarines, Operation High Jump employed the instruments to add a layer of geological information to survey tracks, the magnetic signature tracking concentrations of ferrous elements in the ground the aircraft flew over. Geiger counters further added to the picture the new global interest in radioactive materials making Antarctica an intriguing potential source of nuclear energy. Richard Byrd publicly stated that the USA was not looking to find and extract uranium from Antarctica, which is an excellent way to ensure everyone paying attention thinks you're looking to find and extract uranium in Antarctica. The ships rendezvoused at Balboa, on the Panama Canal, or in the Marquesas, depending on where they were coming from, and headed south on parallel tracks 50 miles apart to increase hydrographic coverage with their depth sounders. Reaching their group kickoff points of Peter the First Island for the eastern group on the 17th of December, the Balleny Islands for the western group on the 24th of December, and Scott Island for the central group on the 30th of December, an attempt to make a landing and establish a meteorological station on Scott Island came to naught. In spite of relatively calm conditions, the shores proving too steep and the approaches too unsheltered. Concentrating on the movements and activities of each group in turn, starting with the Eastern Group, operating along the rarely seen and inadequately surveyed Phantom Coast. The seaplane tender, Pine Island, the oiler Canestia, and the Destroyer, Brownson, sailed south from Balboa in company with most of the Central Group ships, again following parallel tracks 50 nautical miles apart to maximise the sonar bathymetric coverage. Operation Hydrump was military to the core but when data came on the cheap and without slowing any activity down, it wasn't averse to giving science a nudge. On the 25th of December, the ships of the East Group rendezvoused at Peter I Island and the Pine Islands Sikorsky helicopter flew an ice reconnaissance, possibly the first helicopter flight in Antarctica. I should note here that the Kellett Autogyro made the first rotary wing flights in Antarctica during the second Bird Antarctic expedition, but autogyros are a poor cousin to the helicopter. Their rotor is unpowered, relying on the air passing upward relative to their spinning disc of aerofoil sections to gain lift. They are unable to hover because they need forward motion to maintain lift, but they are immune to a lot of the secondary and tertiary forces acting on helicopter components due to the torque powering the helicopter's rotor. Helicopters generate lift by turning their rotor disc of blades made of aerofoil sections and are far harder to design, make, control and maintain than autogyros. But they can hover and remain in the hover, which is the business if you're trying to rescue someone or deliver something with pinpoint accuracy from the air. Helicopters arrived in Antarctica with Operation High Jump and proved a game changer for many a national Antarctic program from that point onwards. And caused more deaths around the continent than crevasses, hypothermia, scurvy, and sea ice breakouts combined. But more on that in future episodes. Admiral Defec posted the USS Brownson 200 nautical miles west of the USS Pine Island to act as a meteorological outpost, and on the first indication of stable flying weather, the Martin Mariner George 1 went on the water. Then it came back on board after damaging one of its stabiliser floats, which received repairs over the following days of poor weather. On the 29th of December, the first flight of the Eastern Group survey effort made a JATO accelerated start, Lieutenant Commander John Howe, carrying Captain Dufec to Cape Flying Fish on Thurston Island and Peacock Sound on the mainland coast, both sites named after XX ships long after Wilkes was anywhere in the vicinity. On receiving a good weather report from George 1, George 2 got airborne and started aerial photography in the opposite direction. With the weather looking to deteriorate in the next 12 hours, the George 1 remained on the water after its return, receiving fuel and a fresh air crew for a second flight. Lieutenant Junior Grade Ralph Paul Frenchie, and I made air quotes around that, LeBlanc as pilot. Lieutenant Junior Grade William Kearns Jr. as second pilot. Enzyme Maxwell Lopez as navigator, Wendell Henderson as radio operator, Frederick Williams as engineer, Owen McCarty as trimetragon photographer, William War as mechanic, and James Robbins as radio operator, were joined by the commanding officer of the Pine Island, Captain Henry Howard Caldwell, going along as observer, which is what you call your commanding officer when they join your excursion for a jolly. That I've named every member of the aircrew for this flight may act as a spoiler that the flight did not go well, but spoilers aren't much to worry about seeing as we're all alive to spot it as a spoiler, seeing as none of us died in an air crash. Ice coffee. Giving you perspective. The weather deteriorated more quickly than the Met reports presaged. The cloud base pushed the mariner down to 1,000 feet above the sea and then to 500 feet above the sea Before Lieutenant LeBlanc was flying in LeBlanc, whiteout conditions. No discernible horizon, no shadows, no landmarks. No sweat for a mariner flying over the sea or at altitude, but extremely dangerous when low and near a mountainous coastline. Lieutenant Kearns relieved Lieutenant LeBlanc at the yoke and climbed the aircraft to 1000 feet as the radar showed them crossing the coast, though no features showed outside the aircraft cabin. Cairns decided to pull the pin on the operation and head back to the Pine Island. He started a shallow turn to port, ice on the wings making the aircraft sluggish to respond to control inputs. The aircraft bounced off the unseen mountainside with a sound I don't like to imagine. Hitting a bollard while inching a car into a parking space sounds like the metallic end of worlds so the physical assault on the eardrums as the aluminium hull of a large, heavy aircraft cruising at 150 knots comes into contact with glacial ice lies outside anything I want to think about. The aircraft bounced, still having enough pace above the stalling speed that Kearns might yet hold it aloft. He pushed the throttles to full noise, but the aircraft exploded. A note about the Martin Mariner is needed here. They weren't quite the Ford Pinto of the skies, but they carried a huge volume of fuel in a series of tanks distributed about the airframe, the engineer using electrical pump systems to bring fuel from the aircraft's extremities to the working tanks near the engines as they used up the fuel closest to all the heat and noise. I'm sure lots of aircraft at the time smelt of fuel, and war surplus maritime patrol aircraft could be forgiven for being leakier than when factory fresh. But the Mariner gained a special reputation among aircrew as smelling strongly of petrol even when new and requiring care regarding sparks and heat, earning it the nickname the Flying Gas Can in some air services. I doubt the George One was going to make a safe water landing after hitting the side of Thurston Island, the planing hull likely being torn up to the all fuck. but there's a good chance the impact also broke fuel lines or ruptured fuel tanks. Being a combat aircraft from the tail end of the Second World War, mariners were fitted with self-sealing fuel tanks. This is a clever system wherein the wall of the fuel tanks or bladders comprises a layer of uncured rubber sandwiched between layers of vulcanised rubber. The fuel doesn't interact with the vulcanised rubber, but if something punctures the fuel tank, such as a bullet from an enemy aircraft, The middle layer of uncured rubber swells up as it comes into contact with the petrol, plugging the hole and preventing a fireball that destroys the aircraft and kills all on board. This, I think you'll agree, is wicked clever, and it saved a lot of lives during aerial fighting. But the system can only seal so big a hole, and if a fuel tank is torn in half by a violent impact, the fuel, while still causing the uncured rubber it comes into contact with to swell, mostly ends up on the outside of the fuel tank. And it seems this is what happened to George I. The disintegrating and flaming aircraft fell back onto the mountainside and broke apart further. Two of the crew, Lopez and Henderson, were killed on impact. Cairns, Robbins, and War were thrown clear, Cairns breaking an arm during his trajectory. Cairns and Robbins gathered themselves quickly enough to return to the burning cockpit and extricate the unconscious and badly burnt Leblanc. McCarthy, who'd been in the tail tunnel near his camera charges, lay unconscious and bleeding from the head in the snow. Captain Caldwell, observing from the seat with the best view in the nose of the aircraft, was thrown through that bubble of perspex and clear of the worst of the violence and flames. Williams survived the immediate impact but died two hours later of internal injuries. The survivors huddled in the tail section, broken clean away from the rest of the fuselage, which in turn separated from the wings. After a day and a half recovering their wits and staying out of the shitty weather, the able-bodied survivors searched the burnt out fuselage wreckage for survival equipment, medical supplies and food. The medical kits burnt in the blaze of the main cabin, but they found tents, cookers and and settled in for a long wait, hopeful but not 100% sure they would be found and rescued. The Pine Island lost radio contact with George One as it approached the coast. VHF radios only work in line of sight and several air accident reports recount a loss of radio contact immediately prior to the crash as a landmass came between the aircraft and the air traffic controllers but by the time the land gets in the way it's almost too late for anyone to join the dots and there's no point yelling into a VHF radio on the ground look out, you've just flown beneath the peak of a mountain between you and me causing a loss of radio contact because you've lost radio contact with the only people that might benefit from that transmission. It's on the crew in the plane to join those dots and I'm not alert to any situation wherein anyone realised in the scant moments available why they lost radio contact poured on the power and got themselves out of the trouble they were descending into. Meanwhile, the George 2 returned to the ship in conditions precluding further flying and got hoisted aboard. During the several days of poor weather that followed, the wings were attached to George 3 and the aircraft was made ready to join the search effort as soon as conditions allowed. On the 5th of January, a flight got underway but was turned back by a low cloud base. On the 6th, George III searched and photographed 100 miles of coast toward Thurston Island but poor weather again turned the flight back. In fact poor weather precluded flying until the 11th when George II flew over the wreckage without spotting it on its outbound leg but the stranded crew lit a signal fire in time to draw attention when the mariner was on its way back to the Pine Island. The aircrew dropped supplies and radioed the find back to the Pine Island along with the names of the dead, painted on the wrecked wing by the living. The crew of George II dropped the message informing the survivors of open water 10 miles to the north. The survivors signalled they could make that distance and the crew of George II overflew the route, dropping marker flags as they went. While the aircraft returned to the ship, its fuel used up. The men on the ground tied Lieutenant LeBlanc to a stretcher and followed the flags on their slog through deep snow. Lieutenant Commander John Howell flew George III to Thurston Island and received permission to land on the open water the survivors were heading toward. After landing, Howell and Richard Conger headed over the snow to help the survivors haul their stretcher. Life rafted aboard George III, 13 days after their crash, The remaining crew of the George One knew they were safe. Fog settled over the island and prevented HAL taking off for 8 hours, making it a full two weeks between the crew of George One departing from and returning to the ship, though their three dead comrades remain on Thurston Island. Bad weather shut all flying down for the 10 days that followed. As with much that is featured in the MGM film of the expedition, I don't know when it occurred or even if it was Admiral Dufek it happened to, but there is a sequence showing an accident while transferring someone from one ship to another in a bosun's chair. A flying fox arrangement used for personnel transfers between ships unable or unwilling to put a boat in the water due to navigational concerns or a need to maintain speed. It is no longer commonly practiced since helicopters became reliable and widespread in naval services for the good reason that a bosun's chair, or bucket, or whatever is being pullied from one ship to another, is a dangerous affair. The conditions that might preclude making the transfer by a launch or tender often also make stringing and riding the pulley system dangerous, and the footage allegedly showing defect transferring from one ship to another shows the occupant of the transshipping receptacle receiving a dunking, then nearly getting smashed against the side of the ship, then ending up in the water as the ships roll away from each other snapping the lines. The alleged Dufek was allegedly rescued, given the time it would take to launch a rescue boat and get back to the man in the very, very cold water. With the exception of Commander Caldwell, who stayed with the Eastern Group, the survivors of the crash boarded the USS Brownson, the destroyer being retasked to the Ross Sea to act as a rescue vessel if anything should go wrong with the imminent long-distance flights taking off from the Philippine Sea. While on station in the Ross Sea, the survivors transferred to the Philippine Sea, the aircraft carrier being slated to depart Antarctica once its cargo of R4Ds got airborne. While aboard the Philippine Sea, a Navy surgeon removed removed both of Lieutenant Leblanc's legs below the knee, frostbite and the associated gangrene having taken hold during his long period invalided on the ice. On the 19th of January, the Pine Islands Sikorsky helicopter, with Captain DeFecke aboard as observer, made a recon flight to seek suitable water for the mariners to take off from near the edge of the pack. The weather got shitty and the helicopter's rotor blades began to ice up. The aircraft could maintain height while flying forward, as helicopters get more lift per revolution of their rotors while flying into air not already disturbed by those rotors. But the H03 couldn't hover. As the ice forming on the rotor blades reduced their aerodynamic efficiency and added weight to the system. A helicopter fitted with wheels can make a running landing if there's enough space. Even one fitted with skids can use the additional upness available through effective translational lift to make a running landing so long as no one's too averse to the noise and the ablation to the skids and the ground they contact. But if a helicopter can't hover it can't land on a helideck on a ship. The pilot had to ditch his machine next to the Pine Island but the crash boat awaited the crash and everybody aboard the Sikorsky survived their brief drubbing. If a third commander goes as observer aboard a flight and then it crashes, I'm calling this coincidence a trend line. I'm going to leave it there for now because it's starting to rain. Mm.